Welcome to the inside. This is the week the busy sound stages in Hollywood and across North America went silent as negotiators representing the studios and the Writers Guild of America worked to find a solution for compensation in a world of streaming. And against that backdrop, the annual Primetime Emmy Awards are approaching. It's the time of year Hollywood stops to recognize the very best of what our industry creates for the home screen. I am Jim Chavin in Los Angeles, and with me is Wim Byans. He serves as CEO of Senionic, and he joins us live from Brussels, Belgium, where it's evening. Good evening, Wim. Hey, good morning, Jim. Good to hear you. Wim, first of all, thank you for hosting us at CinemaCon oh, yeah. Fantastic. in Las Vegas. Uh, all the studios were there and the cinema owners from really all over the world. It's That's right. yeah. always a thrill to bring our live show to the live entertainment capital of the world at Caesars. And have uh, Dan McGrath, the COO of Cineplex, who was a yep. fantastic guest, along with Paul DeGerbedian. And as they pointed out on the show, there was an amazing slate of films, actors, directors, and studio execs that are on the calendar for this year ahead. What did you make of this year's show? It was a very, what I would call, invigorating CinemaCon this year, right? It was, if we just take it from the top, the amount of people joining subscription-wise, uh, was similar as 2019. So that, that's an interesting benchmark, right? But the other very big highlight, like you mentioned, was there was a ton of great emotional, positive attention on the slate, right? There was a great slate. I mean, every studio has really come their way to show the best they could, in my opinion, bring talent in and excite the audiences. But when people feel that the business is going to go in the right direction, meaning, you know, a great slate, it's going to attract a ton of moviegoers, then that puts them in the right mode to also make sure they can embrace the right technology or the right experience they need to, to be able to give their audiences a great treatment. So, no, I think it was a, it was a good, solid uh, CinemaCon this year. When we got a lovely note from a listener in Denver, Colorado, after last week's show, saying that she really resonated with your and Dan McGrath's comments basically saying we need to not just focus on kids and families, we need to focus on adults. She said, after I heard your podcast, I remember thinking there really isn't anything good for grownups right now other than 80 for Brady, unless they love Tom Cruise and action movies and things like that. Is there any room in theaters plans to create a space for grownups like me to watch foreign films or can movie winners, or kinds of films that grown-up parents or grandparents might like that could be going on at the same time that the kid movies are showing. And boy, did we, is this yeah. a common theme that we're hearing? And this is just from one of our listeners in Colorado. It's great. And I think she's spot on, right? And I think we, we probably sympathize 200% with her because we believe that too, right? I mean, there has to be a content slate which which attracts the broad audience or brings something for all the different age uh, and all the different demographics and for whatever people want, right? And looking movies, I do the same with my family, right? So we go to one movie with my wife and the kids take another one and we love that, right? Kind of thing. So I think there is things coming. I mean, the slate is, is broadening in my opinion, right? We got 30% more movies this year than last year, which is a great, uh, good start. And I see some more family movies, but I would say keep on asking for it, keep on fighting for it, because the more people ask for it, the more directors and writers are going to make stories about it, because if there's an audience to watch it, I mean, people will make the stories, I believe. Wim, she adds that uh, based on last week's show, she thinks Oppenheimer sounds like a movie that would fit the bill. 
that makes the guest that we have today all the more appropriate. She is an award-winning, Emmy-winning documentarian whose new film, Pretty Baby, Brooke Shields, premiered at the Sundance Film Festival and is now a two-part documentary available on Hulu. Her previous films include Taylor Swift, Miss Americana, which follows the singer-songwriter over a period of several years. That film became the highest-rated bio-documentary in Netflix history and has a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. She joins us today from New York. Welcome, Lana Wilson. Thank you for having me. Thrilled to be here. Lana, thank you very much for your time here today. What inspired you on making the documentary? And tell about the storytelling. Well, often it's that I will read an article or have the opportunity of meeting a person and I'll read something or hear something and think, oh my God, it would be incredible to be a fly on the wall in the room with that person, to get to witness some of their life and to immerse ourselves in their existence in this remarkable way. So that's often what brings me to a subject. And it's it's that a desire to be in the room, but then also the thought of this person could be the vessel to a much larger conversation, ways that will surprise and move audiences. What, what kind of stories do you feel is interesting in telling? Well, I, I'm really interested in human beings trying to figure out the best way to live. And I I think if you look at my work, it's a lot of very disparate topics and types of subject matter. But one thing that connects everything is that it's people who are on these transformative quests for meaning, for humanity, for identity. So I'm, I'm really drawn to that. One time an audience member told me they realized that the same line is in both of my first two films after Tiller and the Departure, which is someone saying, I would rather have a short life that is meaningful than a long life that is boring, essentially. And I was really struck by that. And so I think there is a sense of a kind of existential quest that all of my subjects are on. Lana, it's great to have you. Uh, Brooke Shields' Pretty Baby is the story of one of our culture's celebrity icons. It looks at her career and is really a look at her journey as a child model and actress in movies like Pretty Baby and The Blue Lagoon and commercials for Calvin Klein jeans. Hollywood Reporter calls your film a timely documentary about Hollywood hypersexualization and a star's resilience. Where is Brooke Shields today, and how would you characterize her life now? Well, I would say that, you know, what I saw when I came to this project and when I looked at this astonishing treasure trove of archival material Brooke handed me, and when I met contemporary Brooke, I saw someone who had very much gained agency and gained control over her own life. But it was a process that was subtle and slow and was over decades. It was not, it was a very hard one process of Brooke going from, I would say, being an object to being a person in every sense of the word. The Hollywood Reporter quoted you as saying, I saw this little girl basically on the hot seat being grilled by talk show hosts who would first praise her for her sensuality and her maturity, but then criticize her for being an exhibitionist. And I thought this is a situation that a lot of women and girls still have to navigate and often privately. Talk about that, that feeling and that conclusion after, after doing this film. Well, when I'm making a film, I'm always looking for moments where I am moved or when I laughed or when I feel that chill down my spine. And when I saw Brooke at age 12, having these encounters with talk show hosts, that's when I felt the chills down my spine. In part, because I, I recognized 
myself in that experience. You know, I think a lot of people who grow up as girls are, you learn the way you look is very important. If not the most important thing, it's up there. You know, you went on to say, and I, I thought yeah. this is so important. You said, quote, I just had this moment of feeling like this is incredibly contemporary. Yes. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, if the way you look is the most important thing and if it's your greatest value, you you then start to really focus on that. But there's this other thing happening where if you are too sexual and if you seem to be prioritizing your looks too much, it's like you've crossed some kind of invisible line and that's going too far and it's asking for trouble and it's dangerous and you're faced with criticism, punishment, condemnation. So I think the experience of being female in a lot of ways is trying to navigate this minefield in a way. And that's what I saw in that footage of Brooke. And that's when I thought, you know, this is a film that's not about how bad things were 30 years ago. It's about what we're still dealing with now on so many levels. And I hope to tell a story with Brooke that many, many people all over the world could relate to and see themselves in. Lana, talk us about your challenges and obstacles you are facing when making a documentary. Think about the collaboration with the team and the subjects. How did you learn to deal with them in a different way today than maybe your first documentary? Well, there are always challenges along the way. I mean, when you're filming, one challenge is that these are real people. These are not actors. And you can't force them to like film everything you want, you know, so... It's a really interesting relationship with a subject because you're always pushing to let them film X, Y, and Z while also wanting to respect their boundaries and their privacy. And so I'm often trying to paint a picture for the subjects I'm working with of what I'm seeing in the movie to explain why I want to film something. You know, the reason I want to film X is because I want to capture, communicate why. But that's always a challenge. And then, you know, things never go as planned. There's a lot of that you have to, and that's what's uh, frustrating, but also thrilling about it is you have to adapt constantly and change in the moment and rejigger everything. So that's while filming. And then while you're editing, real people in real life are different than people on screen, people through a camera lens. Different in which way? Well, they can just come across differently. Like I might come across very differently to you on this Zoom than I do if we were in person in a room, for example. It's someone who you see in a movie, when you meet them in real life, just might have a completely different energy or you have a totally different feeling about them. And so one thing that is, is why I rely so heavily on editors to have a kind of fresh perspective is that you know I've spent time with this person, hours, days, weeks, years. I know them very well. I've been around them physically. Like we have a whole history of our relationship. So there are blind spots I have from being in the field that an editor can help me overcome. This is most often the case when, say, there's a subject who really doesn't want you filming them. For instance, one of the doctors in After Tiller hated being filmed, hated it. And look, I understand. I would never want anyone to make a documentary on me. I get it's annoying to have cameras there. You're in the way. It's uncomfortable. And I remember my co-director and I were just like, we're probably going to just have to take her out of the movie because she just can't this, that we're getting barely any material with her and blah, blah, blah. We get into the edit room and it's immediately clear from watching the footage that although we had very little material with this subject, what we did have was incredible. So it's just like, you know, none of that stuff matters. What matters are these few really special minutes we have here and we can actually make a really rich 
character study, even though from my perspective, the material was limited. From beginning to end, when you start with an idea, how long is it typically from that moment until you're showing it Mm. at Sundance? You know, it's between a year and a half and three years. That's what it's been for me with these four feature films or Brooks, the two-part feature so far. So it's it really begins with, for me, meeting the person. There's one person at the center of all my films, except you saw After Tiller has four people at the center. So it's it's meeting them. It's being curious, being open to what's there, getting to know them in a deep way with no camera at the beginning. And quickly kind of figuring out, well, what is it that is my initial gut feeling perspective on this person? Or what is it that most compels me about them? I'm always trying to think of what made me feel like I absolutely have to make this film because that's the core of what this will be about the whole time. Before bringing on any other crew, I often write like a short story. If I had to turn in this film tomorrow, what do I think the story it would tell would be? And I write it out. It's like three pages, five pages, something like that. And that's a kind of private creative document that I usually don't share with anyone until we get stuck, you know, a year from now. (laughs) So I put that away. But then I have in my head at least a sense of what could this story be so that I'm not just going in aimlessly like a vacuum cleaner, you know, looking for anything and everything, but I can come in with a focus and with certain themes that I think are really compelling. We're right in the middle of a writer's strike. We don't know how long it's going to go on, but former president of NBC, a friend of mine, told me this this weekend that, you know, things are kind of digging in. Talk about the writing process around your project. You said you you write a story to, to start the process. How are your films written? How do we come to see the images that we that we see? Well, I would say that in documentary, the editing process is very much like the writing process for a fiction film. So as I say, y'all, I'd write a short story, then I start shooting. And it, you know, it is with a focus and purpose and intent because I have a sense of what the themes are, but you also have to be open to things changing and to the reality that emerges and different layers that may surprise you. So at the end of filming, often some aspects of my initial idea are there in the can. And in other ways, I have new things and stuff I've been totally surprised by that I want to bring in in some way. So when we get into the edit room, it's almost like then you have to rewrite a short story again. So I've been lucky in my career to work with extraordinary editors. And this process is often, uh, yeah, like what, what is the beginning and what is the end? And how do we want the audience to change from beginning to end. Like that's the number one thing you're looking at. Like how will this be an emotional experience that changes every person who sees it? And then you're figuring out, well, what is the best way to tell that story with what we have? So in a way it's like writing a screenplay only you're limited to the words, the material that you have actually filmed with this person. Our guest insider today is director Lana Wilson, whose new film, Pretty Baby, Brooke Shields, is available on Hulu. We'll be right back. The Insider Show is made possible through the generous support of Cineonic, providing future-ready technical solutions to cinemas. With more than 100,000 projectors installed, Cineonic now illuminates more than half of the world's cinemas every day. Visit Cineonic.com. Our guest today is the Emmy Award-winning filmmaker, Lana Wilson. So, Lana, 
When you premiere your film at Sundance or at a cinema and you're sitting in the back watching it, what are you looking for when you look at the audience? What's important to you at that point in time? <laughs> well, you know, what's interesting is that I often have the experience and I've talked to other directors of having this ex who had this experience as well. I often have the experience at a premiere of my film that it starts and I hear it and I think, oh no, this isn't sound mixed. Or I'm looking at it, I'm like, this isn't the color corrected version. What happened? Something horrible happened and they got an old version of the film that is not color corrected or sound mixed. And I think this is a disaster. And I get in this headspace of feeling like there are all these technical problems that are not actually there. And I can't tell you how many other directors also have this experience. And I don't know what kind of, you know, some kind of psychological anxiety projection, I guess. Or, you know, we're often I'll turn to whoever's sitting next to me and think, it's, I'll whisper, it's bombing. And they'll turn around and say, no, it's <laughs> going over very well. So, you know, you're, you're listening. Once I get past this technical issue that I'm imagining, then I'm listening for the audience. You know, are they wrapped? Are they moving? Are they shifting in their seats? Are they laughing? Are they, emo are they emotional? You know, that's what I'm always, always looking for. And so I, then I'm looking for the same thing at a premiere, but because of the adrenaline of the premiere, I think I'm often misperceiving what's actually going on. So I sort of sit there terrified in my chair for the entire time. And then only at the end, you know, when we go to black, that's when I feel like I can breathe again. Do you feel that film festivals are important to spread the documentary film? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I'm someone who I still go to movie theaters a lot. So I, I love being in person with an audience and that sense of having this anonymous, shared, collective, emotional experience in the dark, looking at a screen where the people are larger than life. I think that's incredibly important. Film festivals specifically are extra important because not only do you get that experience of, of sharing your work with an audience and of watching other work yourself, but you also get to meet other filmmakers, all kinds of connections and conversations happen. You have the chance to see films in conversation with one another. So all of that is crucial. And from when my first film played at a film festival, everyone who I work with now, I, I often met these people at film festivals that year, and not just the big flashy ones, but also the tiny film festivals in little towns where you're staying with everyone in a Marriott for three days. Like that's when the bonding really happens. Lana, I'd love to ask you about the departure. It's a documentary about a Buddhist priest who works to lower the suicide rate in Japan. It's got a remarkable 100% score on Rotten Tomatoes. Here's what critic Steven Sato wrote. The departure creates its own space cinematically between capturing the life of its subject in vivid detail and offering the transcendent experience of genuinely feeling closer to him. Is that what you want to achieve here? Is getting people connected to your subjects in a way that they'd never likely become intertwined? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm so happy you bring up that film because I think it's the film that I'm personally the proudest of. I found over time that I think it's a real filmmaker's film because it's the one that other filmmakers always ask me about. And uh, for me, it was like trying to make a fiction film, but within documentary in a way. I wanted it to have the same experiential, immersive quality of a fiction film and the same mysterious unraveling of the many layers of a human being that fiction films often have too. And I love the quote you just read because that was 
totally my goal that, you know, there, there's not a lot that's told to you in the departure. It's unconventional in that way. For instance, you don't hear anything about the subject's childhood until about 65 minutes into the film. You briefly hear something about it. So you're really learning through being with him and experiencing stuff with him. And you're learning about all of the contradictions inside this person. He's, as you say, a priest who's committed his life to persuading people not to die by suicide. On the other hand, he himself is incredibly self-destructive, a party boy who at the beginning of the film has very little relationship with his six-month-old child. And so the film is about him not only helping other people, but navigating where do I draw a line between giving all of myself to other people versus protecting my own health, my own family. One of the critics said, this is a film that asks, what do we as humans owe one another? Mm-hmm. And what is his answer? What do you think is, is the answer that uh, you learned by making a film about him and your films in general? What do, what do these, what do we all owe each other? Well, I think his answer would be, you know, everything and nothing because he's, you know, this is a Rinzai Zen priest. And I think for him, it's about a lifelong journey he's on to contemplate the fact that we're all the same and we're all different. You know, it's, it's so much about holding to seemingly contradictory truths at the same time and seeing that both could be true at once. So it's, there is no answer to a lot of these questions, but life is about pursuing these answers and struggling with them and grappling with them. And that's what the pleasure of being alive is. What do you feel you owe a person sitting in the dark in a theater watching your film on a screen? I feel that I owe them an intense emotional experience. And I owe them the respect of giving them the space to have their own feelings and come to their own conclusions. And I, my dream is that I think they come into the theater. It's how I come into a theater. I want to come in and to be challenged and provoked and moved and sometimes entertained, sometimes not entertained, but I hope that I'll leave and go out into the world. You know, that feeling of when you open the door of a movie theater, you hit the exit door and you're kind of blinded by the light and you see everything a little bit differently. Like that's what I hope. I'm struck in watching your films. There is no, there is no explanation Right. You start the movie in the middle of a scene, (laughs) right? You immediately start the conversation and allow the audience to take it there. You don't really know prep. There's no discussion. You just begin with the story. Yeah. I mean, there's no general overview. You know what I mean? I think it's just like, you just got to get into it immediately. And it depends on what the film is about, but um, people are coming with preconceptions to all of these topics. You, you might have an opinion on the abortion issue, for example, or you might have an opinion on the music of Taylor Swift. And my goal in the first five minutes of any movie I make is to tell people, this is not what you think it is. And here's what we're going to be looking at. In the first five minutes of Miss Americana, she says, I realized I became the person who everyone else wanted me to be. And that is the central conflict of that film. In Pretty Baby, it's about Brooke looking in the mirror not being able to look in the mirror because she has no idea who she is. And in, in After Children, The Departure, there are their own versions of that as well. One writer who reviews your film said this about you. Lana Wilson must have a knack for putting people at ease since it's quite remarkable how many of those in her films agree to appear in such vulnerable states. What is that process 
uh, because it must be a high degree of trust mm-hmm. to allow someone to to come into such an intimate part of their their world and bear witness to it with a camera, no less. Well, it's it's funny because it's both an instant thing and it's a trust building process that requires a lot of time. It's both of those things. So often, potential subjects, usually at the beginning, unless it's a kind of for higher work. Usually subjects are like, no, if you ask to do a documentary, almost any sane person would say, no, absolutely not. But as soon as I can meet them in person, almost instantly, they're like, yes, you can start filming tomorrow. And so part of it is just this, how we all are when we meet someone, you get an instant feeling about someone. I can trust them or not. And I think it's pretty immediate for all of us as human beings. I think it's like a, a safety <laughs> response that we we have. You meet someone, you trust them or you don't. And so that's what I've always found with my subjects is that it all comes down to that first in-person meeting. But then there's another point where during filming, you want to film something where they think, oh, like, I don't know if I could talk about that or let Lana be in the room for this. And then that's a whole other trust building process. And that's the thing that takes time. And often, you know, they might be like, oh, I don't know. And I'll say, you know what, let's not do it today, but I'll bring it up again. Next time I'm back, I'll bring it up. And and here's why I want to film it. You know, so often that can take several conversations about something or just time being spent around you in the same room to kind of get to understand each other. So both of those things are true. That's instant and it's a long-term process. Lana, where do you feel you are in the trajectory of your career? Do you have a sense that you're doing your very best work right now? I feel really proud of everything I've made. But of course, I also think my best work is ahead. Yeah. I mean, there's so much more I want to do. I'm one of those people who has a lot of ideas always. There's never a shortage of possible subjects. So yeah, I, I, I have to think that I'm going to keep doing better and better. So what, what are your next plans, Lana? What is, what's on the plate for you next? Well, I'm making a documentary about psychics, and I'm also, I've written a script for my first fiction film. So those are two things that are coming up. We can't wait. When when can we expect one of those? The psychics one I'm editing now, so hopefully that would come out sometime next year, maybe the year after, but hopefully 2024. And I'll say it's a lot like I'm working with the same composer as with The Departure, and he watched a bunch of the footage, and he was like... This is exactly like the departure because it's two complicated people in a room kind of struggling to help each other and to see each other. So, yeah, that should come out before. Well, I'm not psychic, but I I see great things in your future. (laughs) Thank you. Very kind. We close our show with a quote of the day. And today's quote comes from the president of the United States, Joe Biden. Speaking to an audience before a private screening at the White House, he said, nights like these are a reminder of the power of stories and the importance of treating storytellers with the dignity, respect, and value they deserve. I sincerely hope that the writer strike in Hollywood gets resolved and the writers are given the fair deal they deserve as soon as possible. This is an iconic, meaningful American industry. We need the writers and all the workers and everyone involved to tell the stories of our nation and the stories of us all. Thank you, Lana. Thank you, Wim. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. Thank you so much for having me. The Insiders is presented by Cineonic and produced by the Advanced Imaging Society in Hollywood. 
Our executive producers are Adam Castles in New York and Mike Piltzecker in Los Angeles. Brett Harrison produced today's show, and our technical director is Matthew Bach Lombardo. This is AIS.